Well, today as we turn to God's Word, we're going to consider one of the most beloved, frequently quoted verses in all of Scripture. You'll see this verse everywhere you turn. You'll see it on banners in the front of sanctuaries. You'll see it on biblically-themed birthday cards and graduation cards and encouragement cards. You'll read it on plaques. You'll see it on paintings. Maybe you'll see it on a magnet on your refrigerator door. You'll see it on T-shirts and the covers of devotional journals. This verse is frequently quoted to those who have been weary by a tough stretch of road or feel overwhelmed by their circumstances. It's often prescribed as an antidote to the discouragement that so easily <clears throat> attaches itself to our souls and yet is so hard to shake. It's offered as a word of comfort to those who are uncertain about what lies ahead. It's voiced as a word of reassurance to those who are struggling to grasp God's will or to understand how their situation squares with God's love and goodness. Yet ironically, despite all of the good that it does, and despite its popularity, it's easily one of the most misunderstood, misquoted verses in all of Scripture. And that proves yet again that where God's Word is concerned, familiarity is often a barrier to understanding. Because we are prone to assume frequent exposure to a passage automatically translates into understanding and comprehension, and it does not. Among Jesus' contemporaries, those who struggled most to grasp what Scripture was saying about the Messiah were the people who were most familiar with Scripture, the Pharisees. They had been immersed in the study of God's Word since their infancy. They began memorizing by memorizing the book of Leviticus at age four. Too late for us to try that, but I can't even imagine it. They could quote large portions of God's Word from memory. They immersed themselves in it daily, yet they failed to grasp most of what it intended about their Messiah. And that situation, and Jesus' repeated warnings about the traditions of men, demonstrate that frequent exposure to God's Word can breed a form of carelessness. We can embrace an interpretation of Scripture simply because it's been passed down to us by others without checking the facts. We can assume that we know more than we know, and we can stop engaging the passage with humility and a teachable spirit. Now, all that being said, let me end the suspense and read the verse to which I'm referring. It's Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. That's Jesus calling, I think. <laughs> Hopefully he'll figure out I'm not going to answer. <laughs> Two weeks ago, we considered the courage of certainty. 
Last weekend, we talked about the certainty of uncertainty for those who follow the Spirit. Well, since certainty begins in an accurate understanding of God's Word, this weekend our topic is be certain of your context. Be certain of your context. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, Every week I gladly confess that I can't do this without your Holy Spirit. I confess that as a reminder to myself and a reminder to this congregation. And we as a community gladly confess that we can't understand, let alone apply your word, without the empowering assistance of the Holy Spirit. So yet again we ask, Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us in this never-to-be-repeated moment. Have your way in our hearts. Exalt Jesus in this place. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. As always, we pray this for the honor of Christ and in his name. Amen and amen. And as we study God's word together this morning, may the Lord be with you. As somebody called to teach God's word, I learned long ago that you can't interpret Scripture accurately if you ignore context, if you ignore its setting. And there are a variety of elements to the context of any scriptural passage. The first is the entirety of Scripture that surrounds the passage. When you're interpreting a verse, when you're interpreting a chapter, that interpretation has to square with everything else the Word of God says from Genesis to Revelation. Another element is the cultural and historical setting in the moment that God spoke. Another piece of context is the initial audience that God was addressing. Another consists of the other things God said to that same group of people at that same time. Another element of context is the language in which God's word was originally spoken to people. And another is whether or not God was speaking to an individual or to a larger group of people or to a nation or to all of the human race. All of those pieces of context are important, and we're not going to look at all of those in regards to our text, but we are going to look at two of them. And I want to start with, to whom was God speaking? Jeremiah began the 29th chapter of his prophecy by stating, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Notice, all those. God was addressing a large group of people. God was addressing a nation in exile. God was not addressing an individual. The word you, in the verse that says, the plans I have for you to prosper you, to not harm you, to give you hope and a future. That you is not in the singular. It is in the plural. And that makes a huge difference. 
because God's promises to a specific group of people can't be claimed by just any individual. And the reverse is equally true. God's promise to a specific individual can't be claimed by just any group. An individual follower of Jesus can't claim every promise made to the nation of Israel. And the church can't claim every promise that was made to the individual we know as Abraham. And while we're at it, I want to remind you that Jesus' followers in the United States of America in the 21st century cannot claim all of the promises of restoration that God made to ancient Israel, like the one that begins this way, if my people who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray. And yet I hear Christians claiming that all the time, and they do so erroneously. And there's a very real danger in that, because those who forget context set themselves up for unrealistic expectations, and then they eventually lead to unnecessary disappointments. When you quote a verse out of context, you end up writing checks that God won't cash. And then when God doesn't cash your check, you're disappointed in God rather than yourself. And if that disappointment goes unchecked, soon it will lead to tragic, faith-suffocating doubt and disillusionment. Jeremiah 29.11 was a specific promise to a specific nation of Israeli exiles at a specific moment in history. It's not a blanket promise for every individual follower of Jesus in the 21st century. A second factor in context is found in the other things that God said to those Israeli exiles. God went on record as saying, I orchestrated your exile as my loving but necessary response to your stubborn disobedience. So when a false prophet by the name of Hananiah came around, he boldly proclaimed that in two years, God is going to free Israel from Babylon. And his announcement was met with great applause. But it was bogus. And when Jeremiah spoke, he was speaking in part to expose that lie. He didn't want people to have unrealistic expectations. And that's when he stated this promise that we so often quote. But before stating the promise, he instructed those exiles to seek the peace and the prosperity of the city where they were living in exile. Think of that. You're an Israeli exiled, cruelly exiled in Babylon, and God says, while you're in Babylon, seek the peace and the prosperity of that city. I imagine they were inclined to seek something else. And then he went on to say that he would fulfill his promise after 70 years are completed in Babylon. That meant nobody in the generation he was addressing was going home. They were going to die in exile. Now, 
safe to say that is not what they were expecting when they heard God say, I have plans to prosper you. And it's equally safe to say that's not what we're anticipating when we quote the verse. It was true, God had planned a future for them, and God was going to give them hope. But it was equally true that their immediate future would look far different than what they had hoped and planned. Now at this point, some of you might be thinking, Pastor, isn't this much ado about nothing? I mean, even if I take the verse out of context, doesn't it still reveal God's heart? And doesn't it offer us encouragement? After all, God does have a plan for us, and God has assured us of a wonderful future. So what's the danger? That's a very fair question. I'm glad you asked me. <laughs> so let me respond by saying two things. First, it's important to pay close attention to context because we need to let the Bible speak to us rather than us speaking into the Bible. And yet, we're all tempted to project our desires and our longings into God's Word. I grew up singing a hymn that you don't hear anymore, and one of the lines of the hymn said, Wonderful things in the Bible I see. This is the dearest that Jesus loves me. Well, someone once suggested, because of our tendency to read our own desires into Scripture, maybe in honesty we should have sung it this way. Wonderful things in the Bible I see, especially when put there by you and by me. <laughs> now, when you speak into the Bible, the results won't always be immediately disastrous, but be assured they will never be good. They'll never be good. Because if we aren't careful, projecting our desires into Scripture can become a habit. And once that habit is in place, it is a hard habit to break. And if the habit remains unbroken, you can be certain the day will come when it will bring some tragic results in your life. See, the piper may not get paid every Friday afternoon, but if you dance to the piper's tune, eventually the piper gets paid. The second reason why we have to be careful about speaking into the Bible is because when God speaks at a particular moment to a particular group, he does so for a reason. And when we use that scripture for reasons other than the one God intended, we will likely fail to see God's reason. Now, I could say that more briefly, which makes me wonder why I didn't in the first place. <laughs> a poor interpretation of a verse will blind you to the accurate interpretation of the verse. Because once you think you know what it means, you proceed on the basis of that understanding. And then you're not even looking for the accurate interpretation. And that means you are failing to learn the good thing that God wanted you to learn from that verse. And in spiritual matters, the things you don't know will hurt you. There are no dispensable, irrelevant truths in God's Word. In the case of Jeremiah 29, 11, 
our inclination to bend its words to our own desires can blind us to a very important reality that it communicates. The reality that God's plans to prosper Israel included additional years of pain. His plans to give them hope and a future included additional years of exile, two things that could have easily extinguished their hope and jeopardized their future. His promise that he would not harm them included some things that looked and felt a lot like harm. And if we don't recognize those realities embedded in that verse, then it's possible that we won't recognize what's happening when God allows similar things to unfold in our lives. If we simply quote Jeremiah 29, 11 as a blanket encouragement to individual believers, the day will come when we will misinterpret God's goodness to us and end up arguing with him and doubting him when in fact we should be trusting him. Because God's goodness often comes in a form we don't find particularly good. See, that's the real core message of Jeremiah 29, 11. God is good, and he's good towards his people, but his goodness often comes in a form that we don't find particularly good. It may come to us in a moment of sadness. It may come to us in some deep disappointment. It may come in the midst of a painful loss. It may come in the form of a persistent problem. As we observed last weekend, God's ways are not our ways. When he plans what lies ahead of us, he does so with far more information at hand. And that's the real message of this passage. So ironically enough, quoting Jeremiah 29.11 out of context may actually get in the way of the good God has planned for us. So while you're saying, Lord, I know you have good things planned for me, you might be getting in the way of the good he has planned for you. I'd like to suggest something else that's lost when we use this verse as a blanket promise of individual safety and blessing. God's good plans are accomplished in the context of community. God didn't pick out certain people within Israel when he spoke this promise even though not everybody in Israel was identical. There were those who had been very faithful to God, and there were those who were very unfaithful to God. God didn't speak to just one group within the nation. He spoke the promise to everybody. Why? He was reminding Israel that they were all in their situation together, faithful and unfaithful, spiritually mature, spiritually immature, but they were all in it together. Western individualism, our habit of viewing life, viewing morality, viewing politics, viewing history, viewing circumstances, our habit of viewing those things strictly and solely in terms of ourselves and their impact upon us has likely done as much or more to poison our understanding of God's word and the application of it as any other single factor. People often say, I'm concerned about 
Eastern influence in our interpretation of the Bible. Well, at points, so am I, but I'm more concerned about Western influence upon our interpretation of the Bible because the Bible was written in an Eastern context where people thought in terms of us rather than me. When you interpret it from a Western context where we think in terms of me rather than us, you've got to come out with convoluted interpretations. I might just add here, <clears throat> that's why we tend to read the Lord's Prayer in the singular, and the entirety of the Lord's Prayer is in the plural. And that makes a great difference, because there's a great difference between God, give me this day my daily bread, and God, give us this day our daily bread. See, if you've got a good job, you'll feel God has answered the first petition. But if you run out of money before you run out of month, you won't feel that. But if you feel it's just about you having enough, then you won't apply the implications of the prayer and seek the economic support of your brothers and sisters in Christ who aren't as fortunate as you. We pray the Lord's Prayer selfishly. It's a communal prayer. Keep us. Deliver us. Provide for us. So is it right to desire the know the plans God has for you as an individual? Certainly. But Jeremiah, Jeremiah reminds us it's not all about us. And the people who realize it's not all about us are the people who are most adept at discovering what God wants for them. God has plans for your brothers and sisters as well. And since God plans the future of all his people, his plans for any one of us may look differently than what we would anticipate. When things don't go the way we would like, if we hear 70 more years of exile, what do we tend to do? God, why me? Why this? Why now? And God has to say, why do you think it's just about you? Listen to what you're saying. You're interpreting your situation solely in light of you. I'm up to something bigger than what I'm doing in you. I'm doing for my whole body the church in the world. And I'm doing for the entire world. So, if you have a t-shirt with Jeremiah 29:11, <laughs> keep wearing it. You don't have to go home and have a ceremony and burn it in the backyard. You'd probably set your porch on fire. <laughs> if you have it written in your Bible, don't cross it out. If you have it highlighted, you can't unhighlight it anyhow. It's not wrong to apply it to individual concerns like where do I go to college, where, what city should we move to, what job offer should I take. Th that's not a horrible misuse of Scripture, but it's not a real accurate use of it, and that brings the very real danger of missing what God is doing on a much bigger scale. 
And when you miss what he's doing in us, you'll struggle to interpret what he's doing in you. So the promise of Jeremiah 29, 11 is bigger than any of us. And I would suggest because it's bigger than any of us, it's better than most of us have ever seen. Let's pray together. Father, deliver us from individual thinking, not from individual accountability, but from individual thinking. And help us to view Jeremiah 29, 11 in its context and realize what it isn't, but have a greater appreciation for what it is. And to interpret any difficulty that comes into our life as something that passed through your permissive will for the sake of everyone in the body. That'll save us a lot of unrealistic expectations and avoidable heartaches and disappointments. You tell us to be able to handle your word accurately. Help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.